Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler. All right. I'm back here on the Investor Coaching Show. I am Paul Winkler, talking money and investing. I just want to hit something really quick because I'll spend a little bit more time on things that we can do to help control risk in our portfolios. A couple strategies that are often used, often talked about, but rarely implemented. Now, uh, one of the things that we find is, especially with the younger investor, is to just blindly trust employers and employer plans and just blindly trust that when you have a 401k and they're investing the money for you, just, you know, just give it to them and they'll handle it in the proper way based on my retirement age. And, and, you know, you hear me talk about these target date funds from time to time. I want to walk through something because it's going to come up in when I talk a little bit about when you manage a portfolio, things that you can do to help manage risk. But there's also a return aspect to this that is incredibly important. Now, let's just talk about return, why it's such a big deal. Let's say that I had $10,000, and I'm just going to use this as an example, and I had 40 years, and I go into the future. So I'm going to use that example, same numbers. I mean, you know, so the, the 10, 10% return, let's say, uh, historic return in the S&P 500. I'm just going to use that. Uh, going back in every thir- almost every 30-year period, it's one plus one minus one from that. And you know, it doesn't matter what 30-year period you look in in history from the 1920s until today. It's around right there. Uh, and if you look at $10,000 invested over 40 years at that rate of return, it grows to about $450,000, okay? Now, Let's say that you take that and the rate of return is 12, it's $930,000. So you look and go, wow, you know, that's a pretty big difference between the two of them, right? Uh, You go 10% return, you know, is uh, is again, you know, and you go 10% return, it's going to be that 450, and it's like double, as we talked about, if you go to 12. And you go, whoa, that's a that's a huge difference. Now, you got to, you know, t- technically, I, I always like to inflation adjust returns, but I'm just making the point about returns. And I want to make a point about asset mixes and what a big deal that is. There's a study that was actually put together by Brinson Hunby Bauer, and they were actually looking at pension plans. And they say, what drove the returns? What was the biggest determinant in returns and the variation in returns between pension plans? And it was asset mix, asset allocation. How much do I have in large companies? How much do I have in small companies? How much do I have in value companies? How much do I have in growth companies? How much do I have in US, international, and so on and so forth? Now, when you look at that decision that you're making with your 401k, that is always the decision that I'm looking at is how much, A, first in stocks and bonds, stocks versus bonds. Typically, when I'm younger, I'm going to be more stocks than I am bonds because I need to have protection against inflation. Historically, bonds do not protect against inflation. Then I'm looking at how much do I put in small companies versus large companies. Uh, Large companies would have a lower expected return. Smaller companies, higher historically. 
significantly higher. Value versus growth. I mean, if you look at value versus growth in general, it's about four to five percentage points per year. Now, I just gave you an example of two percentage points per year. It's four to five percentage points per year in value versus growth. And you go, well, which one's higher? Well, value. Well, what are they focusing on in target day funds? Large, the lower of the two between large and small, and growth, the lower returning of the two between value and growth. Okay, so what on earth is going on here? Well, you look at it, and I'm just going to use four fund companies that advertise a lot, just to show that this is not something unusual. This is not just you know cherry picking that there are certain companies that do this. If you look at Vanguard, for example, uh, their target 2050 fund as of January 2024 uh, is 53% U.S. stocks, 35% international, so more, way more U.S. than international. If you look at the holdings, uh, you only have 1.24% of the portfolios in very small companies, microcap. Only 4%, 4.78% is in small. So you look at it, it's like 5% of the portfolio, 5 to 6% of the portfolio is in small. Well, where do I expect more return? Large. Well, 95% of the money is in larger companies. Then you look at value versus growth. And if you look at the weighting of the portfolio, they have, of the portion that is in the, the large part of the portfolio, you're looking at... Literally, what I'm doing it by eye about 60%, 70, just about 80, 90%. Of that, uh, the the vast majority of it, let's see, what is it math wise? I'm just kind of going through two thirds of it. Two thirds, no more than two thirds. Yeah, good grief. It's, uh, yeah, about four fifths of the portfolio is in large and blend. You know, so you have by far weighting wise, you have the vast majority of the money sitting in blend and growth, which is the more growthy oriented portion of the portfolio. And you go, well, what on earth? That's just they're really, really overweighting and they're underweighting where I would expect more return. You know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, and, and why are they doing that? Well, more about that in a second. Uh, but you know, so you're looking at looking at that. Uh, yeah, and I'm I'm really you know, yeah, about, well about three quarters of the portfolio is is what it is as I'm, as I'm looking at it, relooking at the numbers there. Now, if we look at American funds, another big fund company, they say, well, are they any different? Well, again, U.S. stocks highly overweighted versus international, sixty percent of the portfolio versus twenty five percent of the portfolio. Uh, man, it's even, it's even more pronounced, uh, more than 75%, 80% of the portfolio is in large, the growth and the blend. And you look at that and go, well, where do I expect more return? Value. Well, there's not much there. If I look at small value where you have the highest expected return, according to Morningstar, it's only 1% of the portfolio. Only 1% of the portfolio is in that area. 2% is in blend. Uh, a small blend. And then you look at, okay, well, what about Fidelity? Uh, surely, is, you know, Fidelity is a huge company. Are they doing things any differently over there? This is their target 2050 fund. Now, they are a little different as, as far as U.S. versus international. Uh, 47% U.S., uh, 40% international. A little bit more in that area. Uh, but if we look at the weighting of the portfolio, 
is 24% blend large, 34% growth, and you know 17%. So we're again looking at about about three quarters of the portfolio sitting in the bigger growth blend oriented asset category. That asset mix only two percent in small value, three percent in small blend. So again, we're seeing the same thing over and over. And then Voya, another company, you see there we're seeing lots of advertising by them these days. What are they doing? What's the, what's their asset mix look like? Well, Voya is um, uh, let's see. Asset mix uh, weighting is 27, 27% and 17. So again, about, you're looking at about three quarters of the portfolio in growth and blend. 62% U.S., 25% international, a lot more U.S. focus on the portfolio. And uh, 3% in small value. That's it. So what is going on here? Well, it is safe. Have you ever noticed that in life, it's just safe to look like everybody else? Number one, it's safe from a marketing standpoint to look more like everybody else and hold more money in large, big, well-known U.S. companies. And if you look at the top holdings in these portfolios, you're going to see that the top holdings are those huge companies. The Apples, the Microsofts. You know, those large companies, you know, the ones that you see in the media all the time and being talked about all over the place. But those are the companies whose price is super, super high compared to earnings and book value compared to the rest of the S&P 500. I've talked about that before. So you look at the cost of capital or the expected future returns of those types of things. And that is why those companies historically have lower returns is because they don't have to pay that much to use your money. They're really, really big companies. Really, really big companies don't need your money as much. So if you're looking at their bonds, you would see that the interest rate that they pay on bonds is very low because they borrow out of convenience. Well, if you look at the stocks, why would the stock market be any less intelligent on what to charge to use money? They're not. They would love to charge those huge companies that are well-established and well-liked, well, sometimes well-liked. <laughs> they would sometimes vehemently hated, but, uh, you know, for in some circles. But, you know, you look at that and you go, well, why? I would love to charge you guys more money, but I can't because you won't pay it. Or another way of thinking about it is if I am going to sell a stock in a company like that, if it's well thought of or has a good future prospect for earnings, I could sell it for a high price compared to the earnings that you will get. Historically, what does that equal? Lower future expected returns. Remember I said earlier, value stocks versus growth, it can be four to five percentage points, the data shows. You know, so if you look at the data on value versus growth, you see value historically four to five percentage points difference is a big big deal. It's a huge deal historically. So what we're doing is we're looking at those companies, those big, well-known companies being more growth-oriented companies. That doesn't mean that their stock price will grow. That means that they have grown and that they are really strong from a profitability standpoint. Therefore, they sell for a very, very high price for every dollar of earnings.
96%, you've heard me say this before, if you've listened to this show, probably, 95, 96% of 20-year periods, value has a higher return than growth does. And yet, what are we seeing with these target date funds? The opposite approach. Why? Marketing. Watch out for it. It is everywhere. Younger people especially, younger people especially, who tend to be people that are not really tuned in, you know, in, in, in a lot of instances to this because they think it's going to be a long time before I need this money. You know, I've often said that, you know, by far, you know, what I have found is that I find that people tend, and this studies back me up on this, people tend to really start to focus on their investments and their finances in their 50s. It would be great if we get people younger to actually focus on it, but they just don't tend to do it because it's such a far off thing. But remember, if we look at the time value of money, long periods of time show us the biggest differences. Short periods of time, a couple percentage points difference doesn't make that big of a difference. If you got 30, 40 years, 50 years, I mean, good grief, it can be a huge difference. That's why I just plead that younger people listen to this kind of stuff. And if you're an older person listening to this and going, my kid needs to hear this. Well, that's why you sign up for the podcast and send, send this segment to your kid. I mean, that's, that's what we do for people we care about, right? <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the Investor Coaching Podcast. Now, you may be one of these people that's been listening and realizing, wow, investing, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye and financial planning tax laws constantly changing and recognizing that maybe you might need some help in this area, but you don't want just anybody to help you out. So we have 10 offices in the Middle Tennessee area and everything we do is fee only. We align our interests with your interests. So you can get an initial 15-minute phone call with any one of our offices just by going to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. That's it. Every one of the offices is run by somebody with 20 plus years experience. They're all degree planners. They all have academic backgrounds in investing and you can get the help that you need. So if you want to set up a complimentary phone consultation, just go to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. And we look forward to seeing you soon. All right. Back here on the Investor Coaching Show, Paul Winkler. Talking money and investing. Okay. So one of the things that we think about as investors is how do we reduce risk of our portfolios? And one obvious thing that we can do is make sure we add fixed income. You know, as we get older, we might add a little bit of fixed income. Sometimes people go way, way overboard and they own over own fixed income like CDs and those types of things. And then all of a sudden now they're taking inflation risk. Because if we looked at, you know, historically interest rates, three, four percent, and then inflation at three or four percent, we're making nothing at zero after inflation versus large US stocks, 7% above inflation is the historic return going back to the 1920s. 9% uh, for small companies, uh, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of about 11% for small value, about nine, eight, nine percent for large value. International large, about uh, 7% above inflation. International small, about nine to 11%, depending on how you look at the portfolio. So you look at that and you go, wow, those are returns that are significantly above inflation historically. 
And you think about it, what is inflation prices going up and it's companies that we own that are raising prices. But also you think about their assets, their land and, and things like that. Their assets also have an inflation protection because if their land goes up in value just based on inflation, then the company becomes worth more in that area as well. So a lot of reasons. So one of the things that we do is look at stocks versus bonds. The other thing that we want to look at is, you know, owning these various asset categories. So I've talked about large, small, value, growth, U.S., international, and then having a rebalancing strategy. And this is a big deal when it comes to prudent investment and, and risking and, and controlling risk in the investment portfolio. If you look at you know, prudent management of an investment portfolio, according to the American Law Institute, they talk about these types of concepts. And this isn't just me. This is literally written in the law as to what constitutes prudent management of pension plans, trusts, and those types of things. And there is a whole book that I have, a blue book back in my office, and that's what it is, American Law Institute. And I'll often point to it and go, see what it says in here? This is what we're doing. And people are like, whoa, it's not just you saying this. No, it's not. But a lot of this gets ignored because it's not profitable to the investing industry. So we got to watch that. What is profitable to the investing industry may not necessarily be the best thing for you. So you realign, you have the portfolio broken into different areas, large companies and large value. And you might have 10% of your money in one asset category, large value, let's say, and it gets out of balance. It's at 15%. Well, it's supposed to be at 10. I got to bring it back down to 15. So you may be periodically buying or selling assets in order to get back to the original or desired level of risk in the portfolio based on your asset mix, your asset allocation. And you have systematic ways of doing this. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But this is basically what you're doing is selling relatively high because it's high compared to what it should be. It's at 15%. And when I first heard about this, I thought it was market timing, but it, it isn't. You're not doing it based on what you think is going to happen in the future. You're doing it just simply because it's out of balance. And what happens is that, you know, the academic studies have actually shown that it is one of the most critical decisions that we can make in how you put together a portfolio. And what you do in managing it is the asset mix. It's really what helps us deliver, you know, the, the returns that we need in order to meet our goals and have it stay in line with the risk that we can be taking, may not need to be taking, uh, not taking more risk than we should be taking, but, you know, balancing those risks of market risk versus inflation risk, as I talked about. So, you know, the one study, the Brinson Hood and Bebauer study showed that market timing, only 1.8% of the difference in returns was due to market timing. And you go, well, that's not much. And truth be known, when the pension plans engaged in market timing, it actually had a negative impact on return. Stock selection, 4.6%. So you think, well, you know, I'm going out and trying to figure out which stocks to buy, which ones do I buy, which, which companies are going to be the best in the future. Well, when pensions engage in that activity, 4.6% of return differences were explained by it. And when they engaged in it, it had a negative impact on performance because we're just not good at figuring out who the winners are going to be in the future and who the losers are going to be. It's too hard. Asset allocation, 91.5%. Another study that was done uh, by Brinson Hood and B. Bauer found 94%. So your asset mix is the most likely 
thing to dictate the expected return for the portfolio based on risk. And you'll set up your portfolio based on a different amount of stocks versus bonds and things like that. But once it goes off target, what we want to do is rebalance. Now, the ways that we do that, quite simply, would be, let's say that I have 10% of my money in one asset category and 10% in asset category number two. And the first category, eh, it's done really well. It's had a banner year. It's taking up 15% of my portfolio. And the other one had a terrible year. It's only taking up 5% just to keep the numbers simple. Well, I might take the 5% overage from the 15%. That brings it back down to 10 and take that 5% and put it in what just did poorly. And you go, whoa, that just didn't make any sense. You're right. It doesn't sound like it makes any sense. You're going to buy something that's just, just done poorly. Aren't you supposed to get rid of the poor investments? Well, that is an investment industry teaching. You know, tax loss harvesting. You hear about that. You got an investment that's a dog, sell it. And then buy this thing over here. Well, the problem is you're selling low when you do that. And it may not be the best thing. But, you know, so by default, what happens is human beings are not really well designed for rebalancing because it goes against our instincts. It does. It goes against, you know, we want to go away from pain and go toward pleasure. And we're going toward pain when we do that. So we end up doing just the opposite. We react based on our instincts, our emotions. We have biases that I've talked about before on this show. Hurting bias. We just do what everybody else does. You know, just we look at recent past performance, you know, and, and what we do is we go, well, you know, recency bias. Well, this just did well recently. Let's put more money in that. And there are all kinds of biases that we have just cause, and it's our brains that are wired for survival. We're always looking for danger. We get the medial part of the brain, the, the amygdala, which is, you know, that thing that's fight, flight, freeze, and, and run like heck when, when we're in trouble or fight when we're in trouble. And a lot of times it's run. It's run from something that's just done poorly. And what happens is it, re it reacts to dangers, whether they're real or whether they're imagined. And, you know, what, what we do is we imagine the worst. You know, think about anxiety and depression. What is it? It's this, you know, this future, ugh, I just have this horrible feeling about what's going to happen in the future. And, you know, because I don't know what's going to happen in the future, I tend to fill that void with something I make up. And I usually make up something big, bad, and hairy. Or if I've seen something that's just done well and has a high return, I make up the, in the future that it is going to do really, really well, that it's going to rock. Because it's going to continue. And I complete that pattern in my mind that is going to continue to do what it did in the past. But the problem is the market's random and unpredictable. It doesn't care what your amygdala thinks. It doesn't care what you've made up about in the future what's going to happen. And what happens is we end, end up doing just the opposite of what we ought to do. And the media doesn't help at all when it comes to this. You know, the media tends to put in front of us the scary things that are going to happen. And it hijacks our brain. And I'll talk more about this in just a second. Just some of the things that you might be hearing and just how it affects us as investors. 
and what's going on through our minds because it's really important. If you don't understand this stuff, then it's going to control you. It's going to cause you to make some really bad decisions in the coming year. And remember, the investment industry is constantly marketing to you and they're marketing to your emotions because your emotions are how you make decisions and they know it. You justify with logic later. So when we talk about rebalancing of a portfolio and how we're just not designed to do it very well. It's really hard because we're going against our instincts. We're going against our emotions. We're actually running headlong against what we think we ought to do based on the headlines. I'll pull up sample headlines. Well, like what's going on now? Uh, let's see. What's some of the headlines? Just to give you an example. Uh, U.S. chip stocks tumble uh, is one. Head stocks decline again as Fed won't budge on, uh, budge on rate cuts. Uh, fresh calls for stock trading ban. Okay, that, that's uh, just lawmaker type things. Uh, so stocks to sell before they crash and burn. <laughs> Another one. Uh, let's go. We, we, let's see. What are some other, other headlines? Let's see. Uh, war news. Okay, so we got strikes in southern Gaza. Gaza. Um, we've got uh, Ukraine war news. War in Ukraine. Um, oh, World War II era bomb washes up on the California beach. <laughs> And that wouldn't want to expect it. But, but anyway, uh, U.S. strike in Baghdad, uh, you know, so, you know, more regional war. And, you know, it's just a lot of things that can be just scary. Just the point is. And, you know, when you have bad news like that and the stocks go down, we think, man, it's just going to keep getting worse. It's really bad. It's just going to keep getting worse. And so what we do is we run to try to protect ourselves. Which, you know, you look at it historically and you look back at market downturns and you go, well, what has been what, occur, what, what, what tends to occur after a market downturn? And if you said market upturn, you're, you're right. Uh, you know, so when, when we panic and we get scared after we see something about a, a steep decline or a drop in the market, or maybe we see something that you know China is doing or whatever, we see these things and our brain looks at it and goes, that's dangerous, that's bad. And then what we do is we react. We tend to make a decision to make a change or do the opposite of what we ought to be doing when we're rebalancing, we're selling that thing that just did well and we're buying the thing that just did poorly. And when we do that consistently, we're following that golden rule of investing. Buy when prices are low, sell when prices are high. And what we, what we end up missing is that the reason that we do this is because when something is overrepresented in our portfolio, and it may be bonds, it may be fixed income, it may be CDs, it may be things that we think are safe are overrepresented, we've actually put ourselves at more risk. We're overconcentrated. And then we're underconcentrated in that area that may have been out of favor for, you know, a few years now. I mean, I remember when I was studying under. Uh, Gene Fama and, and going out wherever he was speaking and he was talking, this Nobel Prize winner uh, from the University of Chicago, he was talking about putting money in and owning small value international stocks. 
And I, I was looking at going, <laughs> five-year return of zero. Are you kidding me? I wasn't saying that because I was just all ears. Because I knew I didn't know what was going to happen next. But he made that point, and it seemed irrational in a way. But the more I thought about it, it made sense. You know, things go through cycles. Life goes through cycles. Bad times don't last forever. Good times don't last forever. It's just the way life is, and the stock market's the same way. Rebalancing. That's why so often we automate it through cash flows and a lot of different really complex strategies that I'm not going to talk about here. But anyway, that's it. That's the idea. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. If you want to learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there. And if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more confident investors, and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. The opinions voiced and information provided in this material are for general informational purposes only and not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what investments are appropriate for you, please consult with a financial advisor. Paul Winkler, Inc. does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation.